Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Dog and Duck Show. My name is Warren. I am the dog. With me as always is my co-host Mark. He is the duck and uh, we're thrilled to have a special guest with us, Trevor Mueller from the 4th and Inches Network. He'll be chiming in throughout the show. Trevor, welcome to the show. Glad to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, Really cool to be on the podcast that I produce and listen to like every week. You guys are awesome. I was Absolutely. just before, yeah, before getting on, I just remember the first time I talked to Mark, I asked him if um uh Bo Nix was going to be Vernon Adams or Dakota Brewcup. And, and what did I say? Because <laughs> I'm I may have been yeah, leaning. Well, I hope it's that, not either or. Yeah, that that was a good question. And I I think I would I had major reservations about the Bo Nix uh addition to the roster so that was a fair question well now i can't speak for mark and uh i think i would know what his answer is but i can say that i listen to you trevor and kayla and you leah and jake every week love the show love what you guys put out and uh, it's always great to be able to listen to a couple other podcasts before hopping on to record your own because you always get some great nuggets and insight uh, that you can kind of share. And, and I got to tell you, I listened to the podcast you guys recorded after this uh, UW Arizona game. I kind of went into the podcast uh, thinking, Oh man, there's going to be a lot of griping, a lot of, you know, hair pulling a lot of, you know, sky is falling, but uh, you guys really, I think kind of threaded the needle on uh, your analysis for, the game, you know, you, you identified some of the areas that needed improvement. Uh, but, you know, I thought that there was definitely a voice of reason in the room. And, uh, and so great job. I appreciate that. And it was because when you're watching it, it was a frustrating game, right? Sure. Washington should have been able to put them away. But the reality is they were in control the whole game. They were pretty much up two scores the entire game. And they got out of the desert. So what else can you ask for? Absolutely. So we're going to talk about that game. We're going to talk about uh, Oregon's stomping of Stanford. And uh, then we're going to look ahead to the most important week in the history of the dog and duck rivalry. And uh, there's no better place to be than the dog and duck show for the next couple of weeks. So we're excited about that. And then we're going to conclude our podcast today by introducing a a new topic, crazy talk and delusions of grandeur. And for those of you that don't know my co-host, Mark Schmore, uh, Mark has an incredible ability to lay out either uh, historic storylines or potential storylines in ways that are just fascinating riveting and uh, awe-inspiring so we're gonna we're gonna let mark just kind of unroll a a gigantic what-if scenario that could potentially include the university of washington huskies and the oregon ducks playing one another in the national championship game (laughs) for the third time this season but we won't unveil that till we get to the end and it's going to be a lot of fun. So do not uh, miss that. Stick around for the whole show. I do want to mention 
Today is October 3rd that we're recording this uh, podcast, and uh, it's my dad's birthday. My dad passed away in the fall of 2020, uh, but I would not be a Husky fan today if it weren't for my dad. I, uh, my dad, we, my parents moved to Washington in 1975, the year that I was born. One of my favorite stories was my dad uh, driving in his car on the way to work, hearing on the radio that the Huskies had hired an unknown head coach named Don James. And he said, who the hell is Don James? And uh, later came, became known as the dog father. And so I've got a photo in my phone of me and my dad standing in front of the statue of Don James, which was our last game together. So it's, it's always good to remember your roots and uh, grateful for the opportunity to be a dog fan. And we know, you know, and Mark, you've talked about the, the way that Oregon football has shaped your relationship with your dad. Uh, we know that for many of our avid listeners, uh, this is personal. It runs deep. And as we get into hate week, we're obviously going to sling some mud. We're going to have some fun at each other's expense. Um, but we do it because uh, this is fun. This is this is what gives joy and contour to life and to relationships. And so at the end of the day, uh, Mark and I are still friends. We've got a great picture uh, after last year's game in Autzen Stadium, uh, standing in front of the score court, scoreboard with uh, me with a big smile, Mark with kind of a sullen expression, wearing a pink Oregon Ducks hat or beanie. And uh, that is something that I'm sure will probably find its way onto the Dog and Duck Show Twitter account uh, at some point in the next couple of weeks. But let's get into it. Let's talk about last weekend's game. Uh, University of Washington went on the road into the desert to play the Arizona Wildcats. Um, similarities to last year's game uh, on the road against Arizona State. Last year, we came out with a narrow loss. This year, we came out with a win that was uh, never really in doubt, but certainly got closer than we anticipated. So... You know, Trevor, as you mentioned, we we talked about the Huskies moved to five and zero. Oh, they remained seventh in the nation. They took care of business. But what were some of the key takeaways from the game on Saturday that that either you felt like okay, this this showed me something about this team that I I wasn't sure of before, or hey, these are some some red flags that we need to really you know uh, take care of before facing a, a legit team like Oregon. You know, there's really a bunch on both sides because you saw that the run game emphatically is a weapon that Washington can use. Another part would be that you, even with the wide receiver room, with all the talent that's there, Jalen McMillan is so extremely important mm -hmm. Because he is a master in that intermediate route, taking the ball 15 yards down the field and then running, you know, uh, give, given another 15 yards just with his elite speed. And because that wasn't there, the, the deep throws weren't available. 
they made up for that obviously with the running game and a couple of really really impressive plays by the tight ends the tight ends were maybe the mvps on just those two plays right um i think that arizona i don't think they have a quarterback controversy just because i think noah fafita was giving them uh taking what washington gave them but when it comes to him actually being in a game where they're not down two scores and watching, you know, a team isn't playing back on them. Mm-hmm. I think he's going to struggle getting the ball down the field. So mm-hmm. those are kind of my takeaways from now. The defensive line is really good. You as a, as a Husky fan playing against, you know, the next game you have is against Oregon and yeah, you know, Bo Nix is great. Bo Nix doesn't have to throw the ball. That team can run the ball so well and mm-hmm. having uh, a healthy defensive line is going to be very important. Yeah. Can I ask about uh, you mentioned the the absence of Jalen McMillan? Do we know what his status is expected to be for the Oregon game? Well, you know, we're we're learning something, or I, I think we're starting to learn something about the the Kalen DeBoer approach to you know talking about player injuries in press conferences, and you know after the Michigan game, which was the game that Jalen McMillan got hurt in. Uh, it was, oh, he's fine. He'll be back. You know, no worries. It wasn't that serious. And then we didn't see him against Cal. Now we didn't see him against Arizona. So you, you, if you're a, a hopeful Husky fan, then you're saying, okay, they're taking extra precaution. They want him fully locked and loaded and ready to go for Oregon. If you're more of a, a downer dog, then you're saying, oh man, this is a major problem. Uh, DeBoer doesn't tell the truth about player injuries. And from here on out, we're going to have to take everything that he says about somebody's health with a grain of salt because it's probably worse than the way he portrays it. Would, Trevor, would you say that that's kind of the maybe the two takes that you can you can take on that, uh, you know, the way that things have played out with McMillan? Yeah, he he basically says something without actually saying anything. Cause you have to take it with a grain of salt. Cause he said that he should be good to go. He used that word should. Yeah. As his kind of unlocks the back door so he can sneak out if it doesn't happen, obviously. So I think he'll be back for this. I mean, even watching him in the second half of the Michigan state game, he was on the bike. He was moving around. Okay. My guess yeah. is three weeks later, he's going to be okay. Um, I'm glad. I'm really glad that this bye week is right now. No, I agree. And I think, um, you know, as much as these guys really, they came back to win a national championship. They came back to beat Oregon, to beat USC, to beat Utah. And I don't think there's any way that you're keeping J-Mac or Rome or Thule or any of these other guys that came back for an additional season. You're not keeping them off the field unless a medical professional has said, you know, that your career will be ruined if you don't uh, take this week off. So my gut is that we're going to see Thule. We're going to see Rome. We're going to see J-Mac. We're going to see everybody except for Asa Turner. I think that's the one guy that's probably got something going on. That's more serious than, than you can just grit it out. But, you know, where they will be at in terms of like max, you know, ability, that's 
yet to be determined. We won't know that till they get out on the field, but I think you're going to see all those guys out there and we're going to need it because this is obviously the best team by far that we've faced. It's also the best team by far that Oregon has faced thus far. Uh, but I, I think looking back at that Arizona game uh, to me, um, you know, I wasn't as perturbed as maybe some other fans were. I look at it and I go, okay, they scored a touchdown on the first three drives of the game. And they took what the defense gave them. They, they accomplished the same goal using a different method, which was running the ball and utilizing the short game that was made available to them. They almost got a field goal at the end if it weren't for kind of uh, a questionable penalty. And then, you know, the second half, there were at least 10 to 17 points that they easily left out on the field that you would think is something that was could easily be cleaned up. There were a few penalties that obviously that's an issue. Um, but overall, uh, I, I think there's a lot to be encouraged by. And if I'm a defensive coordinator for Oregon, I'm thinking, oh, crap. Now we really have to game plan for Dylan Johnson as well as these wide receivers. Dylan Johnson had over 130 yards combined uh, on the ground and through the air over this past uh, past game. But the last three games, he's averaging 95 yards per game, rushing and receiving. So he's on pace to finish with over 1,000 yards. So if you've yeah. got a 1,000-yard back in addition to three potential 1,000-yard receivers, um, that's a pretty difficult team to game plan against and i think just by the nature of you know where they were on the road what the defense was giving them j mac being out um you know the huskies proved that they can get it done a different way this week and it's really small things that didn't end up mattering against arizona that right in an oregon game those things have to be become uh conversions in a way obviously it's a two weeks in a row the penalties have been the biggest issue but you have the, the fumble on like the two or three yard line and then you have the dropped interception by thaddeus dixon when he hit the ground you turn those around that's 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 at least a 10 point swing yeah and you know we're not having this conversation about some emotional people getting really frustrated with Washington. Um, I think that that's something to think about that those plays didn't happen or did in the case of the fumble and those have to get, if those happen against Oregon, that's the difference between winning and losing potentially. Yeah. And Mark, you'll remember last year at this time, you know, we, we went on the road and we lost to UCLA and we could not tackle anybody. And then we went on the road, we lost to ASU and, you know, Penix threw a pick six. Uh, we could not tackle anybody. Our, our back end of the defense was completely decimated. We went into that Arizona game saying the only chance that we have to win is if we do a, a, a total 
um, you know, just barn burner of a, a point scoring type game, which is what exactly what happened. Delora torched us for over 400 yards last year on the defensive side of the ball. And we just happened to have more firepower at home. That is not the case at all this year. You know, even though we allowed Fafita to, you know, get down the field, I saw a much better tackling team. The the cornerbacks, the defensive backs were making open field tackles everywhere all over the field. They were tackling runners. Um, so, yeah, you have to think that there was a certain level in which the defense was not playing a, a certain type of aggressive style because of the score but they were keeping everything in front of them. And it really forced Arizona to work their way down the field. Whereas again, if you go back to last year, uh, you know, especially against UCLA, like guys were just running right by our defenders. And that was not the case this past week. And with that, I mean, Oregon, Arizona and Oregon's offense aren't that dissimilar because they both try to get their athletes in space or not too far down the field in the intermediate, the, the bubble screens, the around the line scrimmage and in the intermediate routes and let them win there and just have good runnings, running games. And Washington's been able to stop the running games. The question is when it's Oregon, when they have better athletes than Arizona, and we'll be able to have more explosive plays. Will Washington's defense be able to slow them down enough for their offense to score? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we'll talk about that in just a minute. I'd say one other, one last thing before we look at the the Oregon-Stanford game is the continued growth and emergence of Jeremy Bernard. Uh, We knew he was a stud coming into the season, but he is progressively... Uh, become a bigger and bigger part of the game plan every week uh, as a pass catcher and as a runner, you know, the, the fumble inside the five yard line was an unfortunate occurrence, but a tremendous learning experience, I think for, for that young man, but uh, he was our number one receiver this past week. And I think, again, if we talk about getting J Mac back, against Oregon and now you're looking at those four together um again that's got to be a, a nightmare for a defensive coordinator to think that that you know Odunze, Polk, J-Mac and Bernard could all be on the field at the same time and all have the potential to be a hundred yard receiver in any given game from here on out. So I think just that if you're going to draw some positives from uh, a a game that was a more narrow law, narrow win than we anticipated, that would be it. Um, Maybe that was how some Oregon fans were feeling after the first eight minutes of the Oregon Stanford game being down six, zero, I've learned to resist the urge to text you uh, some <laughs> snarky comment when the game is still that early on, because I know it's probably going to backfire against me. So I, 
I was I was wise to withhold that comment because the Ducks came roaring back, scored 42 unanswered points. So, Mark, give us a little bit of some of what you saw from the Ducks dominating win, particularly the final 30, you know, final three quarters against an overmatched Stanford. Yeah, I mean, just a, a funky game in that Oregon ran three plays in the entire first quarter, right? They had a three and out that was sandwiched by two long field goal drives that took up, you know, six and a half minutes apiece. So, uh, so yeah, it was a six to nothing lead after a quarter, and yet it didn't really feel like Oregon's offense had had a chance to really do anything yet. And so once they got started, the floodgates kind of opened up. Um I think the, you know, it's hard to take away much against a performance against Stanford because I think they're probably the worst team in the conference. Uh, but there are a few items of note that I I think are worth flagging uh, just as we're kind of trying to put this Oregon team into perspective. And, and it has to do with the defensive side of the ball. Mm-hmm. We, we came in to the season expecting Oregon would have a prolific offense like they usually do. Uh, but having some real questions about the defense after last year's, you know, really below average performance. I think they were 75th in the nation in scoring defense last year, which was a real disappointment uh, considering they, they brought in a guy that was supposed to, you know, know how to build a defense. Um, The defense is definitely improved. Like we can say that they have 18 sacks in their first five games this year, which matches their season total from 13 games last year. So they've already hit Mm. last year's total five games into the season. They have 12 different players that have contributed to that number. So they're bringing a lot of different guys from a lot of different places on the field. They have three different guys in their starting secondary who have recorded sacks this season. Uh, So that's one thing that, that this has was a major priority in the off season was figuring out a better pass rush and you can check that box. Um, but just overall, um, I mean, the fact that they held Stanford to six points maybe doesn't say much. But I do think that holding Colorado to six points can be viewed a little differently now that Colorado scored 41 against uh, USC, which is actually their average in the four games when they're not playing Oregon. They've averaged 41 points a game against mm. a schedule that includes USC and TCU, Nebraska. So um, I do think there's reason for Oregon fans to look at this defense and say uh, there is a, there is a definite improvement. Like mm-hmm. it is a fundamentally different defense. Players are, are there's new players involved. They're playing at a higher level at all three levels, uh, you know, defensive line linebacker secondary. Having said that, I could go through and list for you some of the great defenses in past Oregon history and point out their worst performances, and they might be dominant this year, and they still mm-hmm. might get torched by Washington. You know, the the 2009 Chip Kelly's first team had a really great defense for most of the season, and they gave up 51 points to Stanford, <laughs> Toby Gearhart, and, and Andrew Luck, you know, so... I don't, I don't want to get ahead of myself in thinking, oh, this is a great Oregon defense. They're going to shut down Washington uh, just because I've seen too much football to, to you know, think of it in those terms. But I do think 
if you're scouting Oregon, you have to say this is a much better defense than the team that that they had last year at Autzen Stadium. Absolutely, you know, and and Mark, um, we're, we're going to get into the 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 preview for uh, this upcoming you know game. There's a bye week this week, um, but you know, as you're kind of thinking about that, you know, I think. One one question I'm curious as to what both of you guys think is when you look back at last year's game, it was really the, the tale of two halves, right? Like the first half was a real struggle. It was, you know, the dogs ended the first half up 13-10. And then in the third quarter, the floodgates opened and both Knicks and Penix were just tossing bombs down the field you know uh, bucky was just gashing the uw defensive line for like a 10 minute drive that you know really only ended because of a bizarre you know injury fourth down sequence but you know based on kind of what you've seen would you guys anticipate that this you know matchup is going to be more like the first half of that of last year's game or more like the second half i i i tend to lean towards the first half just because it seems like when you bring two great offenses together the defenses kind of take it personally that they're being left out of the conversation and mm-hmm. and i can think of examples where a game like this it's like we're surprised going into the fourth quarter that it's like 21 to 17 or something like that, that it's just that it it didn't turn on to this first one to 45 wins or something like that. So I, I wouldn't, I mean, I certainly wouldn't be shocked if this is a game where both teams are in the forties. Uh, but I do think, I think it's going to be one of those games where there are wild swing. If if both teams play at the level they're capable of, and it and it doesn't just turn into like a snowball where, you know, Oregon gets behind the chains and they start turning the ball over or something like that. But if both teams play at their peak level, then I think there's going to be pretty wild swings where the defenses are going to make plays and the offenses are going to make plays, and it's and it's going to be uh, back and forth. Which actually, if you think about it, last year's game was you know you had Oregon fumble fumble the ball going into the end zone you know um at the one yard line mm-hmm. you had Washington throw an interception in the end zone you know uh to begin the fourth quarter you had Oregon get stuffed on that fourth down like there were some significant defensive plays even mm-hmm. in the midst of this game where the offenses were were running up and down the field and I I think I would expect something something similar in this year's game it was like watching Rocky in the second half at the end of one of his boxing matches, just haymakers landing everywhere. Yeah. Guys getting hit in the temple, getting up, throwing another haymaker. And I, I agree with Mark that I think the game is going to feel very similar in that way that instead of in the forties, I think you're going to see like a mid thirties where there's going to be some stops. Mm. There's going to be some, weird things that happen but you're also going to see i mean these two quarterbacks are too good to not do something all game right mm-hmm. yeah oregon's oregon's running bucky irving is terrifying mm-hmm. uh his that i was in the end zone 
when he made that cut that he broke a tackle, made a cut and ran for like, I think it was a 35 yard touchdown. Uh, you guys know which one I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was an elite cut. I, I, I still think about that cut. Yeah. More, and more than it was I like, he, he ran through a giant hole because that was cut was so tremendous. It, yeah, yeah. It was and on that note. Can I, if I can chime in here, because I have some, some info that Husky fans might be interested in if they haven't been following Oregon, you know, last year, Oregon ran for over 300 yards on the ground and it was Irving and Noah Whittington just kind of taking turns, Mm -hmm. sometimes running the same play. It seemed like time after time after time. Um, Noah Whittington was injured a couple Mm -hmm. games ago and is now out of the lineup kind of indefinitely. I think most Oregon fans are not expecting him to play in the Washington game in his place has been a uh, sophomore Jordan James, who was mm-hmm. mostly used as a goal line back last year as a freshman. Uh, but he has been given some run. And I think there's actually some excitement in the Oregon camp that he mm-hmm. actually might be the best of the three. He's averaging over wow. eight and a half yards a carry mm-hmm. uh, in, in kind of splitting time right now with, with Bucky Irving, they're getting about 50% of the carries to each of them. So it'll be a different, uh, different name coming in. It, no, it won't be Whittington paired up with, with Bucky Irving. Uh, but I think Oregon fans are very much looking forward to how does Jordan James take advantage of this opportunity? Because, you know, he's been playing against kind of JV defenses the last couple of weeks. This is the first mm-hmm. chance to see if he, if he is up to that standard against, against a real defense. Well, both teams, you know, seem to have really improved from last year, which is really pretty impressive when you think about the fact that they have a combined record of 20. They had a combined record of 21 and five last season. And then to say, I think both these teams are better um, is pretty amazing. And, you know, we've talked about this. This This is the first time in this storied rivalry that both teams are coming into this game undefeated, ranked in the top 10, both with hopes of Heisman candidates, both with hopes of national championships. And uh, all eyes will be on this UW-Oregon game come October 14th. So we're going to, just to kind of give you a preview next week, we're going to bring on our beloved panel of dog and, and duck friends to kind of weigh in on pregame prognostications. You know, we might hear Andrew make fun of uh, Kalen DeBoer coaching at Sioux Falls. You know, we mm-hmm. might hear JJ melt down about the potential of getting run on by Bucky Irving for 300 yards but we're going to let we're going to let you know the emotions fly and then after the game we're going to hopefully capture uh you know all of the joy and the heartache uh from whichever fan bases are uh you know experiencing one or the other and uh, we'll have a second pod next week but mark uh, and and Trevor with with that in mind you know, just a few kind of key things that I wanted to bring out for you guys to discuss when it comes to this upcoming game 
is that really like uh, Mark, you said it well in a text thread that we're a part of uh, this game in many ways is a toss up. They're both tremendous teams. They both have, you know, so many reasons why they could be the best team in the Pac-12, make it to the college football playoffs, and potentially vie for a national championship. But that being said, only one team is going to come out of this game undefeated. And so I started thinking about, you know, if you're in a situation where there's a game that's essentially a toss-up, what are the factors that could be a tipping point? And I came up with three factors, three three factors that I think can tip the scale. The first one is obvious, home field advantage. So last season, the Ducks had the home field advantage. It didn't end up, you know, work resulting in a win. But uh, Trevor, I don't know, were you at the 2016 Friday night Stanford game where, you know, Stanford came in ranked number six. They had Christian McCaffrey and the, the crowd that night was electric. It was deafening. It felt like 1991 again. And the Huskies curb stomped uh, McCaffrey and crew 44 to six. I expect that's going to be the environment for this game on the 14th. What, what do you think about that? That was my favorite game I've ever been to. Oh, how cool. That was. It's hard to put into words what that atmosphere was like. Um, I also went to the 2016 Oregon game later that season as well. <laughs> but I don't remember that one. Nothing bro. compares to that. <laughs> I had a good Doesn't friend, Justin. Uh, hold, hold, he, I went over to his section. He's a season ticket holder for the ducks he went over to give him a, a give him a hug and he ended up holding me away from the field as washington scored their 70th points um <laughs> i expect that too are you guys going to it we'll be there our, our whole our whole dog and duck crew Excellent. is going yeah yeah we're also going to be there i expect and we're bringing the duck fan as well um i expect it to be Absolutely packed. I expect it to be very similar to the Stanford game with more fans because Oregon has fans that come mm-hmm. to games. So I think that you'll see some green, but I think the place is going to be, you know, back to the old Husky stadium where the camera's shaking. I mean, it's going to be insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in my, in my, you know, checkbox, that's advantage you dump. No question. The, the the second factor could can be I a just little... chime in on the on the home field advantage front I um no you can't no no go ahead go ahead. <laughs> well I mean it obviously is an advantage uh for the huskies and I think Warren there was a text that I sent to you where I laid out like you know 10 different scenarios for how this game could unravel or yeah. or or unfold and one of them was an unraveling one of them I said it was it could be a snowball game for Oregon which is they fall behind early. They press a little bit. They start having three and outs. They start forcing the ball and Washington just scores at will. And all of a sudden, like it just gets out of hand quickly. So that, that that's is 2016 much... Stanford. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I don't think that's going to happen by the way. I, I, I think I gave it. Yeah. Like maybe a 10, 10%, 15% chance or something like I, I think that that is out there. I think if I'm trying to find a reason to kind of be excited 
on Oregon side, it's it's kind of a similar idea to how Washington performed last year, which is it is a lot of fun to go in as an underdog mm-hmm. to a hostile environment when you feel like we've got a really good team and we have a chance. This place is going to be electric. Like I I can't think the last time Oregon went on the road and played in a game like this was probably like the Mario Cristobal era. Like, I I don't think Lanning has taken a team into it, like a true road game. There's the Georgia game, but that was a different environment altogether. Um, But in terms of like a true road game against a really great, you know, conference opponent, uh, because most of Oregon's big games thus far have been at home. So there is some measure in which the great teams kind of respond to that and kind of love the moment. Obviously, Washington really fed off that last year. They were they mm-hmm. were not intimidated by the the Otson environment. It remains to be seen whether Oregon can can withstand that. It certainly advantage Washington, um, you know, uh, for all of the reasons that home field advantage is is an advantage. But uh, I'm very interested to see like first quarter or so. Does Oregon look like they're up for being in that kind of environment? No, absolutely. And, you know, certainly um, there's not a, a long track record, but just point of note, the Huskies are undefeated at home since Caleb, Kalen DeBoer took over. And, uh, you know, that that also kind of gives me a little additional, uh, in, you know, encouragement that, we're going to get it done at home. The second factor is, you know, when you're in a toss up game, who has the better quarterback and uh, in tight matchups, you want the quarterback who can deliver when the game is on the line, both Penix and Knicks have demonstrated over the last two seasons, a tremendous ability to lead their teams when they're needed most. And both have started this season in dominant fashion. Uh, the Ducks were, as we already mentioned, arguably a Knicks injury away from a win over UW, a win over Oregon State, a Pac-12 championship, a college football playoff berth. Um, Knicks, uh, you know, by all accounts is healthy coming into this game. Uh, but in my opinion, nobody is playing the position of quarterback uh, better in the country right now than Michael Penix Jr. Um, and he's got the playmakers at his disposal to, to get it done. He's the quarterback that I want in a shootout in the fourth quarter. Uh, so I, you know, as a, a bleeding purple dog fan, I put the check marks for advantage in the Husky column. But That's I wonder... I wonder where I wonder where you you land on that. Uh, either one of you guys, where do you land on, you know, the which quarterback do you want with the game on the line in the fourth quarter, heading into this game? Well, I mean, Trevor, I would be shocked if you didn't say Michael Penix. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, what do you think? Everybody knows what I think. Go ahead. <laughs> I all all I will say is this. I I mean, obviously, Michael Penix is he's phenomenal. Um, he's the Heisman front runner and all of this. Like, there's no reason why you wouldn't say Michael Penix, especially if you're a Washington fan. The only thing I would say about in kind of as an argument for Bo Nix is there have been three times in his brief career at Oregon 
when he has found himself trailing by two scores in the fourth quarter away from home and had to score, get the ball back, score again with zero margin for error. Did it last year up in Pullman, uh, did it in, in their bowl game against North Carolina, uh, did it earlier this year at Texas Tech. And obviously Michael Penix has the the great throw to Taj Davis to beat Oregon. That's kind of his comeback, I guess. But I, I can't think of like a true like comeback where you're down by multiple scores. Like Washington hasn't really trailed that much with Michael Penix as a quarterback, right? I mean, the the only real opportunities for that would have been like UCLA or Arizona State. Like there hasn't been a moment that I'm forgetting, right? Where he Oregon led, State last Oregon year. State. Yeah. Were they were they down in the fourth quarter in that game? They were tied. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, it was a good defense. That was a good I'm, I'm not trying to belittle it. I'm just saying like uh, I understand your point totally though. Like there yeah. there is a sense in which Michael Penix is I kind of look at him almost like the Steph Curry Warriors. The I I look at the Washington offense where it's like the last thing you want is to play this offense when they're coming off of a touchdown drive. Like, you know, um, just as like with the Warriors, like once they score three baskets in a row, it's like, good night. Like this team is about to just blow the doors off the building. I think what I'm curious about is what what could it be like if they're scuffling a little bit? Like how does Penix respond if he throws a couple early interceptions and and gets a little bit behind? That just because that's something that we haven't really seen, and we may not see it all season. Like they may just continue to just dominate in a fashion mm-hmm. where where they never really get tested. But at least on on the Oregon side, we've we've seen Nick's in that setting uh several different times and he's been able to come through. I guess maybe UCLA where he just continued to ball out, but the defense just couldn't make those stops. Mm-hmm. But I, I see your point. He yeah, did, and yeah, let's and let's keep well in mind that you know Penix time. did did have a career before the University of Washington and certainly there were some games when he was an Indiana Hoosier when um they were you know, undermatched and, and uh, he has come up big in every big game that he's ever played in. So I, I don't, I don't anticipate this to be any different. Let's talk about that third factor, which is, you know, if you're in a toss up game uh, you want to have the home field advantage, you want to have the better quarterback in the fourth quarter and you want to have the best head coach. And again, these are two great head coaches. One in Dan Lanning, who has demonstrated that he is a highly capable recruiter and motivator. He's built an excellent staff around him. He's also proven to be one of the ballsiest coaches in college football. And that play calling bravado has won him some big time games. You know, I think point back to the UCLA game last year and some of the the calls that he made in that game were really what blew the doors open. Uh, but, you know, some of those calls have also cost him a couple of games, you know, i.e. the the Oregon State game from last year. Uh, Kalen DeBoer, on the other hand, has proven he knows how to win games and build championship teams. Um, he's He's got a career record of 95 and 11, and he is... 16 and two as the head coach at the university of Washington. And just as a, a, 
a point of reference. When Chris Peterson arrived at the University of Washington, he had, I believe, either the highest or the second highest winning percentage of all active coaches in college football. And it took him midway through his third season to get to 16 wins. So that's what Kalen DeBoer is doing. He is he is lapping Chris Peterson right now as a head coach at the University of Washington. Um, so again, for me, advantage UW. What say you guys? Mark, what I, do you think about his comments saying that during a bye week, some people are taking it off, but we're taking it as like as a work week. Dan Lanning. Yeah, I was curious. Like, <laughs> that was who, insane. Who who relaxes during a bye week, Dan? <laughs> right. I'm curious what that was in response to, but um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't really have any. I mean, I have been on record from the beginning. I thought Kalen DeBoer was a home run hire. Uh, I think he is absolutely on the short list of the greatest coaches in college football. What he did at Sioux Falls weighs heavily in that opinion for me. I, I, I don't think that should be dismissed. I think um, he's done a great job, obviously, with with Washington. I don't think um, that makes him like immune from blowing a game or being outcoached in a game. I mean, they did lose to an Arizona State team that was coached by an interim coach just last year. You know, when he was at Fresno, he had a top 20 team that blew a 14 point fourth quarter lead to Hawaii to a, a bad Hawaii team. So like it just the idea that, that because Kalen DeBoer, like may be a coaching genius, which he may be uh, that doesn't mean that another capable coach on the right day might be able to get his team to, to play better. And, mm -hmm. and I would argue that, you know, for, almost the you know i mean we felt like with five minutes to go in last year's game that that was going to happen so mm -hmm. um i think with where i'm at with lanning is uh the things that i have wanted to see from this year's team i am seeing especially on the defensive side of the ball yeah i think he clearly made a great hire with will stein as his offensive coordinator that there's been no drop off by losing kenny dillingham like like some of our Husky friends, you know, intimated that there might be, uh, but you're, you're right, Warren, like he, until, until he has a game that kind of makes people forget about the, the fourth down calls against Washington or Oregon state, like in, until they win a game like this, that's just going to kind of hang over him. It, it does seem like the fact that they beat Utah the week after they beat Washington, they beat a top 10 Utah team uh, where they, went for it on fourth down in a key moment and converted mm -hmm. uh that mm -hmm. that gets like no no credence it's like oh that game just didn't happen um but i i think that uh i i'm i have reason to be hopeful in lanning's ability to get guys ready to play just because aside from that georgia game at the very beginning of his tenure which i think there's a lot we could go into about that you know, they've, they've come out and they've been ready for the biggest games that they've had. Mm -hmm. Even, even the collapse against the Beavers, they had a 21 point lead in that game because they came out focused and ready. They came out focused and ready against the Huskies last year, you know, the UCLA mm -hmm. game, the Utah game, the Colorado game. Like, um, I, I don't, I don't, um, I don't see this being a game where we look back on it and are like, Oh, Kalen DeBoer just coached circles around Dan Lanning. Like maybe, right. 
maybe, but I, I think, um, I think it's probably going to swing on, on some smaller things that, um, that might be a little different. Well, you know, as they say, anything can happen in college football and that's why we love it. But this should be one of the most unforgettable games in the history of the series. Um, so Warren, can I, can I chime in and give you two other kind of, um, related kind of things that, that could be interesting things to watch. One thing I think, uh, that, that is on the mind of both teams is the role that penalties might play in this Mm. game. Both Oregon and Washington have been terrible in racking up Mm. penalty yardage. Oregon is 123rd in the nation. Washington is 132nd in the nation in penalty yards Mm. per game. They're two of the absolute worst teams in the country. Oregon only had two penalties against Stanford, which they're kind of patting themselves on the back after like three weeks of, of just racking up penalties. So I think, you know, that sound discipline is, is the, is the type of thing that that'll be interesting to watch. You would think that the home field advantage there would help Washington play a more disciplined game. A lot of times the road teams have more trouble with that, but I think that's a, a, one of these types of things that could swing the game. And the other thing is always you got to look at, at special teams, which is Mm -hmm. an area where I think both teams have reason to be confident. Washington obviously swung the, the Cal game with a early punt return for a touchdown by Roma Dunze. And then on the, on the Oregon side uh, against Colorado, they, they had a fake punt on their own 17 yard line that they converted. They, uh, they blocked an extra point. They blocked a punt. Um, the special teams kind of across the board in year two mm-hmm. for running has, has been upgraded. They have a punter last year. They tried out five different punters. None of them worked effectively. One of those guys won the job this year, and he's averaging 10 yards per kick more than he was averaging last year. So, mm-hmm. like, they seemingly fixed their punting woes by finding one guy that can just boot the ball and working with yeah. his technique. So, uh, I think special teams, that's where hidden plays happen. Hidden yardage takes place there. You know, oftentimes something weird can happen that can swing a game. So so that's another area that that I'll be looking at for these two teams. And that's part of what I think about when I think about the coaching matchup is some of the comments that Dan Lanning's made, the decisions that Oregon's made under Dan Lanning. And I mean this as respectfully and as positively as possible. He's, he's got a little crazy in him and (laughs) he'll do things that are very, uh, if you look at the, you know, the analytics, it's a bad decision. And more often than not so far it's worked out and it's something that you actually as somebody who has to scout them evaluate them it's at least time that you have to take that oh deep in their own territory they might give it to an athletic lineman who's going to run for 35 yards mm-hmm. you know that it's just a little bit it's in your mind it makes the defense have to think for a second before they react and you know those it's it's a very small margin for error of success and failure with those that's the part of Dan Lanning that makes me nervous but also is something that can be used to his disadvantage like going for it with Ty Thompson against Washington you know what I'm saying yeah yeah and I think for Oregon fans there is a history there of going back to 
you know, Chip Kelly, who loved to go for it on fourth down, who loved to run the swinging gate after the first touchdown of the game, who loved to have exotic fake field goals and fake punts, and and generally had a lot of success with those things. Like I don't remember it really ever going wrong with Chip, like in a big way. Um, I don't think anything yeah. went wrong for Chip Kelly at Oregon, yeah. to be honest with you. No, and I mean, he was doing that in the national title game against Auburn. They ran the swinging gate two-point conversion. They ran a fake punt in the fourth quarter. You know, they did a little bit of this and that. Yeah, Lanning hasn't had he, – he isn't batting a 1,000 on it, which I think is is opens him up for some criticism. And and I think you're right, uh, is that it may, it may cost them this game or it may cost yeah. them – another game because his eyes get too big for his stomach, but it is also the type of thing that um, sometimes you need uh, to make that aggressive call and be willing to kind of put your own reputation on the line to, to, you know, make the winning call in a game. So um, it, uh, yeah, I could, I could see that being a storyline either way coming out of this game as we're talking about. Absolutely. Uh, Lanning blew it or, Oh man, you know. Yeah. And uh, and let's not forget, you know, last year was the Peyton Henry redemption game. You know, kicks a 43-yard field goal with 51 seconds left to win the game. But guess what? Peyton Henry is not on the roster anymore. So when you talk about going into this game and thinking about special teams, Grady uh Grady Gross, who is our current uh kicker, Right now for the season, he's four for five, two for two from 20 to 29 yards, one for two from 30 to 39, one for one from 40 to 49, and he's made all 29 of his extra point attempts. So uh, he's made every kick except for one kick thus far this season. But he doinked it. He hit off the crossbar. Yeah, certainly that's something that – we would love to feel a little bit more confident about because we haven't kicked very many field goals this season. And he may be called upon more in the second half of the season to kick field goals than, than uh, you know, we'd like. So I think that's a great point, Mark. Another excellent point being the, the penalties. Um, and certainly this past game was the most, um, you know, the most noticeable for the Huskies. Trevor, I don't know if you have any kind of recollection or or memory on this, but, you know, as I was kind of thinking back on all of these penalties, as, as best as you can remember, how, you know, what percentage would you guess uh, of those penalties were committed by second stringers who, you know, maybe made the penalty later in the game because you know i do remember elijah jackson having a couple of pis at the beginning of the game and boy against boise state um but you know even last week's game garen hatchett who's a backup you know who was thrust into duty he had a couple holding calls that were you know really unfortunate you know how much of the of that stat of being one of the most highly penalized teams is the result of having a lot of backups in the game. You know, when it comes to that, how many at the aggregate of ones that happened when I guess you could say the game mattered and not, I don't, 
I don't actually know. Um, but what I do know is that they are getting penalized during when the game is in question. And for both of these teams, the game has been in question most of the time until the half, right? Right. But you can think of Elijah Jackson. Um, Jabbar Muhammad had one this week, a, a, a PI. Mm-hmm. Um, Thaddeus Dixon had a pick six have to come back because of a defensive hold by him. Yeah. There's that, been even s- in that game, I think that was uh that wasn't that when the backup was over. In? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that game was definitely over at that point. Um, but some of the holding calls, you know, you you've you've got uh the left tackle, um 55. Uh Fontano. Fontano has one. Yeah. Gary and both of his were one of them should was a pancake that they called. Mm-hmm. Um even on Peacock, they were talking about Jalen McMillan's hold, how mm-hmm. it just looked like he was blocking hard. And yeah. it's just called, but the reality is it was still called a hold. And so right. that's an issue. My yeah. question is, Mark, are you seeing Oregon not getting called for the holds that are the opposite teams not getting the not getting called for holds like Oregon might be because that's what we've seen. Brian Trice especially has been held on most possessions and has yet to get a flag thrown at for him. Um. Well, I mean, Oregon has recorded eighteen sacks in five games, so I don't think I don't think too many successful holds have taken place. Like mm. I think if teams are holding Oregon, they haven't been doing it very well. Colorado certainly wasn't. Um. So no, I I. I think the biggest storyline for Oregon's uh, on the penalty side was against Texas Tech. They had three different pass interference penalties that I think all helped set up touchdown drives. Um, One of which was kind of a shaky call. One of which was just a really poorly played ball by the defender. I think he, I think he lost track of where the ball was. Um, different different things, but they had they had three different pass interference penalties, and I don't think they had any pass interference penalties against Colorado. And Colorado was throwing the ball all over the field. Yeah, Dur Sanders took I think half a dozen deep shots down the field, where Oregon was able to make a play on the ball without interfering. So that's been something that I know they've really addressed in practice to try to in, improve. Another storyline that might rear its ugly head was josh connerly got called in that texas tech game in the first half i think he got called for offsides three times because of the the crowd noise and the energy and the emotion this is a seattle kid who's going to be playing you know in front of uh his home hometown fans of some kind and uh and so you know does he hold his water on the offensive line so there's some different things like that that'll be that'll be interesting to to follow on the oregon side all right. You guys can thank Jerry, uh, uh, Jimmy Lake for having him down in Eugene. <laughs> oh, man. Yes. Yes. He's all yours. Uh, so 1989, the Batman came out. Michael Keaton. One of my favorite scenes from that movie is Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne saying, you want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. <laughs> so let's get crazy Let's get into this crazy talk, delusions of grandeur portion of this show. Mark, you have 
uh, laid it out in a, a number of text threads, all of the crazy scenarios that could take place, not only for Washington or for Oregon, but really for the entire Pac-12. So walk us through some of your, you know, delusions of grandeur, and uh, let's talk about it for a minute. Well, the, the first one that I came up with was in the offseason, and I, I sketched out a hypothetical in which Oregon, Washington, USC, Utah, Oregon State, and UCLA all finished 10-2. and two. And then it was basically by having them all almost entirely beat each other on their home when when they were home against one of the other teams it almost mm -hmm. worked out i think there was one or two road wins that had to have happened now ucla doesn't look like they're maybe up to that standard so i i've swapped in washington state and that that is still in play like two weeks into conference play the idea of all six of those teams finishing 10 and 2 is technically still in play i can keep our listeners up to date week to week as to whether that's that's still a possibility. I think if Cam Rising doesn't get back for Utah, it's really hard to envision them holding up their end of the bargain on that. So maybe maybe we could have a five-way tie of of ten uh teams finishing with the same record. But um so that's one scenario that's just out there. It's just like the mass chaos, everybody finishes with the same record. Uh, I think the the kind of the most common scenario that you've heard brought up is like, what if Oregon, Washington, and USC all kind of beat each other in a round robin and you have three mm -hmm. and one teams, only two of them get to go in the conference championship game, but maybe the team that gets left out of the conference championship game gets invited to the playoff. Um, you know, the, the, so there's some interesting um, as a second, as a second Pac-12 team, you know, that yeah. the team. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's what that's how Alabama has found its way into the college football playoff in Ohio State, you know, um, last year. So that's a scenario, I think. But this is the one that I came up with just today that I shared with you guys that I think I think if I'm a Hollywood writer, this is what I would write. Now, to be clear, I'm rooting for Oregon. I will be devastated if they lose in mm -hmm. CF. Um, <laughs> but if I'm if I'm putting my objective hat on and I'm saying I'm a Hollywood screenwriter, and I want to script the next two months of this final Pac-12 season. Here's here's what I would script it. Now, you guys tell me, you get you give a thumbs up or thumbs down if you think you could foresee this happening. Can you see the Huskies beating the Ducks in Seattle? Oh, yeah. Yes. Can you see the Ducks winning the next week in Oxen against the Cougars? Yes, definitely. Okay. Then, this is where it starts to get a little tricky. Do you think both... Oregon and Washington can sweep their games against USC, who does not appear to have a defense, and Utah, who does not appear to have an offense. Yes. I do. I mean, I think it's going to be tough to go on the road and beat USC at home. I mean, they do have a Heisman Trophy winner at quarterback, but it's definitely within the realm of possibility. Within the realm of possibility. Um, I'm not sure I'm this is one I'm not I'm not sure Washington would be favored at USC right it's going to be like a field goal margin you know like mm -hmm. they would be a major underdog um, okay now I've got a list of so the Washington State after losing to Oregon or prior to losing Oregon they would have to beat UCLA mm -hmm. they would have to beat Arizona 
And then after losing to Oregon, they would have to beat Arizona State, Stanford, Cal, and Colorado. I think definitely doable. Should be favored in all six of those games. And then you've got Oregon State. Oregon State would have to beat Cal, UCLA, Arizona, Colorado, and Stanford. I think the Beavers should be favored in all five of those games. Mm. Yeah. So if all that if all that happens, okay, if right. if uh, Huskies beat the Ducks, Ducks beat the Cougars, Cougars and the Beavers both take care of business against the the rest of the conference, Ducks and the Huskies take care of USC and Utah. What that would lead up to is we could have the Beavs coming in ten and zero, or or the Beavs playing a ten and zero Washington, the next to last game of the season. The Beavs would come into that game nine and one. And if Oregon State can pull the upset over at home Washington at home in Corvallis, that would give us, I think, the best possible scenario for a final weekend because we would have a ten and one Washington against the ten and one Washington State in the Apple Cup. We would have a ten and one Oregon against the ten and one Oregon State for the Platypus Cup. It would essentially be like a Sweet Sixteen matchup as far as the college football playoff, because the winner of those two games would then meet in the conference title game, which would essentially be an elite eight matchup. And then the winner gets into the college football playoff and the final four, I think for the last season of PAC 12 play to have Oregon and Washington, these bitter rivals in the mix, possibly having a rematch in the PAC 12 title game, but also the Beavers and the Cougars, the two teams that have been left out in the cold, that there's a possibility that they could end up meeting as like the pack two championship. That's, that's my like dream nightmare scenario. Warren, what, what do you make of this? Well, you know, it, it would be so amazing to see something like that play out because, you know, the odds of that happening especially as we've talked about on this show with this being the final season of the PAC 12 would be just absolutely perfect. And, you know, hopefully Mark's moments would be there to cover it all and to wrap it up and put it into a classic all time, classic hardcover coffee table book uh, that uh, people will cherish for the rest of their lives you know, we know that uh, for every storybook ending, there's dozens that don't end up quite that way. Uh, so will each of these teams win the games that they're favored in? Will Oregon State lose a shocker to Cal? You know, will uh, Washington drop one against you know, Utah at home who, you know, all of a sudden Cam Rising comes back and now it's a totally different Utah team. You know, there's so many things yet to be determined, but, you know, that you kind of laid out what would be kind of the dream scenario, but I wonder like, would the nightmare scenario be if, Oregon made it through the season. Let, let me okay, let me put it this way. Which would be worse in your opinion? Would it be worse for Oregon to lose only two games this year 
but those two games to be against Washington and Oregon State for the for the second year in a row? Or would it be worse to lose to Washington, run the table, make it to the Pac-12 title game, face Washington again, only to lose to Washington a second time on a neutral field and watch what Washington, you know, advance into the college football playoffs, which one would be more difficult for you to, to swallow if that were to be the case? I mean, that's, that's like, you're like asking me, like, <laughs> you'd rather get gouged in your left eye or gouged oh in your right eye. Like, what's, what's <laughs> like, like answer the question for yourself. If you, would you rather lose to the ducks and the cougars or would you rather lose to the ducks twice? Like, you know, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No right answer. I do think though that what you you bring up a good point though, which is, I think with the state of Utah's offense without Cam Rising and the state of Utah's defense with Lincoln Riley, uh, we <laughs> we do have kind of a a sense where it does feel to me a little more definitive five weeks into the season that in some order. Oregon and Washington are the, are the two best teams in the Pac-12. Doesn't mean they're both going to make it to the Pac-12 title game. The Cougars could definitely be a spoiler in that scenario. Um and and USC just based on their prolific offense, but uh but it does seem like, you know, Utah and USC as contenders maybe have some bigger vulnerabilities at this point than Oregon mm-hmm. or Washington has. So the idea of of having this epic game in Seattle and then potentially having a rematch in December does kind of color the whole thing because I know that for me, if I had a choice of winning one of those two games, I would rather lose the game in Seattle and then win the conference championship. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. Like I think that would, that would feel better at the end of the year. No doubt. Yeah. Unless Unless, and this brings us to our final crazy scenario. So say Oregon or Washington wins this game and runs the table and enters the conference championship game undefeated. Mm -hmm. And then say the other team runs the rest of the table and enters the conference championship rematch, you know, at 11 and one. Mm -hmm. Then if the loser of the first game wins the rematch so say oregon wins the first one and say they go up to seattle and and shock the huskies then the huskies come back around and win the rematch in the pac-12 title game that opens up my scenario where now you have two 12 and one teams out of the pac-12 and if things break right in all of the other circumstances that we have is there a way that both teams could get invited to the college football playoff and we would have the potential of a third and final rubber match in the national title game. If you want the craziest scenario, that's, that's the craziest scenario is these two teams playing three times. It would be like Duke and North Carolina and coach K's final season. God, that would be wild. You got to root for Notre Dame to lose. If you want that situation to happen. Yo, you got to root for yeah. a lot. Of yeah, you're right. You're right. You got to root for Texas to lose, Florida State. You know, yeah. I mean, there's so much. Look, me and Warren know who's at the helm in Texas. Right. You're so, crazy you if you think they're not going to yeah. have a stinker. Yeah. yeah. No doubt. 
No, Mark, I mean, truly, that would be one of the most incredible culmination oh. of events for Washington and Oregon to both make it to the college football playoffs. In the scenario you described, though, it would be very fascinating because you would have to have one of those teams be the number one team in the country at 12 and one, and another one be the number four team in the country. Or excuse me, the number. No, no, no. You could have three and two, right? They could be yeah. three and two. They, they could, could be, be three and two. And three. They could be two yeah. and four. Okay, never yeah. mind. Yeah, I take that back. So, yeah, that would be pretty crazy. Um, and but I think you're right. I think it would have to be both teams most likely being twelve and one because I think a team that's twelve and one is going to get in for sure. A team that's eleven and one but somehow misses the Pac-12 championship. I seriously do not believe that uh, the college football powers that be are going to allow the Pac-12 in their final season of existence to have two teams in the college football playoffs. They're, you know, they would, those Washington and Oregon would literally have to kick the doors down in order to get both of them in. And that's, that's if this scenario of one team going uh, 12 and 0 during the regular season, another going 11 and one with their only loss being to the 12 and 0 team and then getting revenge. And now you've got two 12 and one teams who have only lost to each other one time that's the only way that both teams get into the college football playoffs, in my opinion. I, I I agree with you, and I agree with you that an 11 and one team that misses out on the conference championship game getting in is is a long shot. But I would say it's happened twice. It happened once with Alabama, mm-hmm. and it happened once with Ohio State, um, where that you know Alabama joined Georgia, Ohio State joined Michigan by getting in, and I think. It wouldn't necessarily happen for Oregon and Washington, but it could 100% happen if USC is the team that's left out. If Oregon and that's Washington true. That's true. are playing in the Pac-12 title game and an 11-1 and yeah. USC with Caleb Williams is just sitting there, I could totally see the playoff right. committee saying, oh, of course we need the Trojans involved. Like, Right, especially if you know the Tro- Trojans' only loss is to one of those two teams yeah. in, the, in the championship game. So... Hey, let's all cross our fingers, say our prayers, whatever the outcome of October 14th, may it be so that uh, they meet again in the Pac-12 championship and uh, go out in style for this final year. Guys, any final thoughts as we wrap up uh, this incredible podcast? I, I'm still just delighted that you decided to take an objective a, an objective take on the key factors of this game by rating home field advantage quarterback and coach all in Washington's favor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just br- brilliant work on your part, Warren. <laughs> Mark, what on earth would have ever caused you to think that I would be anything but objective? <laughs> objective with I, your purple colored glasses. I know. mean... If you look, if you if you see the logo, the avatar for my Twitter account, um, it is a purple Kool Aid icon, um, and that symbolizes the fact that I have drunk the purple Kool Aid 
I am all in on this Husky team and uh, there's no stopping us. So no, but I mean, you know, to your point, I, I truly believe those things to be true, but um, you know, there was, there was one thing that you didn't bring up related to the quarterback that I meant to mention. And that was Bo Nix's feet. And he hasn't used his feet uh, really as a key weapon this year thus far, but I think that's there for him if needed, especially in the fourth quarter. So if I were a Duck fan, that would be, you know, one card that I would be playing if I were to say, hey, this is why I would take Bo Nix over Michael Penix is that, you know, when you've got a quarterback who can scramble and pick up those third downs when the defense is gassed, uh, that's a weapon. And I don't think the Huskies have that in Michael Penix. But if Bonix is anything like last year's Bonix, then they most certainly have that as a weapon. Yeah, very true. And I, I hope I hope we are play this clip two weeks from now and are like Warren called it. Warren knew. Warren identified the right. key point. You know, call him like I see him, but I'm still taking Michael Penix uh, uh, every day of the week and twice on Saturdays. Um, the question was posed to me in my podcast about whether or not um, playing a close game right before the bye in Arizona would benefit Washington more than a blowout win at Stanford for Oregon. And my response to that is the reality is both teams have played four quarters once in five games. Mm -hmm. There's no advantage that I can see. Oregon struggled with the Texas Tech team. Washington, if you want to say, had to play in the fourth quarter of a game. Mm -hmm. You know, outside of that, all of these games have been over before halftime. So I, as much as this is the most highly anticipated on paper game with, you know, this matchup really either being Washington dominating or Oregon dominating, not a ton of close games throughout the the long history of this uh, matchup. It is so crazy how, similar these teams are in their resume coming in their strengths and the improvements of their weaknesses from last year. Mm -hmm. I mean, this game is going to be absolutely insane. I, my wife's a duck. My oldest son is a duck. My middle son is a Husky and my youngest son is three months old. So he doesn't count yet. So he's going to, he's going to tip the balance on which, which color our house is going to be painted. I can't believe this game set up this well. I'm, I, yeah, I cannot wait. Oh yeah. Well, we'll all be there. We're all going to be at the game. We're all going to be bleeding with our teams. Uh, you know, just curling up our toes throughout the game, you know, high-fiving and just pulling our hair out all game long. So it's going to be one for the ages. Um, guys, thank you so much for uh, joining us tonight. It It is so fun to be able to talk about 
the dogs and the ducks when both teams are doing phenomenally well and uh, both fan bases are feeling extremely positive about their you know, respective teams. So please stay tuned to the dog and duck show. We'll be back next week with our dog and duck panel. And then uh, don't miss out on the, uh, the hate game, the hate week game uh, reaction show, which will take place sometime within 24 hours after the game is over. So thank you guys for joining us for all of our dog fans. I, along with uh, Trevor Mueller say go dogs. Go dogs. And for all of our duck fans, I, along with Trevor's wife and one of his children say (laughs) go ducks. (laughs) All right. Thanks for joining us guys.